0: Good morning again, welcome to our, our first Sunday of Advent, and um, you know, if you're new to some of this, or even if you're not new, uh, I know that everybody doesn't know what Advent means. Um, I'm sure you've heard of people talking about Advent during the Christmas time, but what does Advent mean? Uh, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, uh, everybody say Adventus. Right, now you all know Latin, and uh, it means arrival or coming, Uh, the arrival or coming of Jesus. Uh, The first Advent celebration that I'm aware of happened in the 4th century in modern-day Spain, and it was actually a response to bad theology, bad teaching, and that's a lot of our traditions and uh, our habits, our traditions, our customs come from us trying to remember what's right and good and true. And uh, there was some bad teaching. Uh, it was called Priscillianism. It was from this guy, Priscillian. It was, uh, he was teaching that flesh, all matter, it's bad. It's evil. And so Christians that were hearing this, they, don't had the, they didn't have their own copy of the Bible at the time. So they were hearing this teaching, and they were believing it. And then they started thinking, well, if if matter or flesh is all evil, then uh, Jesus being born, He couldn't have had a body because Jesus never sinned. And so they started teaching that. And other Christians who did understand the Scriptures responded to that, and so they started this new tradition, this Advent tradition. Four Sundays before Christmas, they would celebrate the bodily birth of Jesus they understood how important the humanity of Jesus is, that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus was born of a virgin, uh, John 1:14, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Bible even tells us why it's important that Jesus was a real man. It's because God cannot die. Jesus had to put on flesh. The Son of God had to put on flesh so that he could live and die, be buried. And, and be raised from the dead. And so they understood this, so they started this new tradition. And it's, it's taken many forms. Other Christians started adding this. We have the candles. We have the advent wreath. But it's all surrounding, let's, let's celebrate the birth of Jesus. But it wasn't just the birth. The first two Sundays, they would celebrate the first advent of Jesus. But do you know there's a second advent? There's a second coming of Jesus. We call it the return of Jesus we are aw- awaiting the second advent so every christmas time we remember and we celebrate Jesus came and he's coming again but then it raises a question what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting what do you do while you're waiting i'll give you an example there's a home we'll just call it the we'll give it a nickname uh, the the dapers home And the Dapers have five kids, and uh, sometimes the mom and dad tell their kids that we have guests coming over. We've got guests coming over, and we tell them. And uh, at our front door, at the Dapers' front door, there's there's this window next to the door. I don't know what to call it. I know the window above the door is called the transom window. I don't know what the side little skinny window is called, but... We have a side skinny window and there's these blinds that block, you know, because we don't want people looking at our house. Um, and so the kids will move the blinds, not carefully, I might add, but anyway, they move the blinds. They will sit there for one hour before people are coming over like, listen, we, listen, you're, you see how mom and dad are like cleaning and fixing things. They're like, why are your socks on the floor? Let's get ready for these people to come. You know, don't just sit there. When you're ready for people to come, you have to get ready. You have to prepare. You have to make things ready. You can't just sit there at the window, looking out the window, waiting for them to come. The same is true for Christians. God did not call us to sit at the metaphorical window, the stained glass window, and just wait for Jesus to return. What are you supposed to be doing while you're waiting? You're supposed to be active. Actively waiting, and that's what our passage this morning has to happens to be upon. I think it's providential. We've been studying through the letter of Titus, and in Titus chapter two, he talks about this arrival as we are waiting for Jesus to return. So in Titus chapter two, verse eleven, for the grace of God has appeared. Now notice that word "appeared." Uh, It's going to appear twice. No pun. This this happens twice, and it's significant. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way, or godly manner, your translation may say, in a godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing, notice how the first is past tense, God has appeared The grace of God has appeared, and now we're waiting for this next appearing. This is what Advent's about, the first coming and the second coming. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. I realize that verse 14 is not on there. I didn't put that on there. But I I want you to focus on the, I highlighted it in yellow, I emphasize those words, while we wait in verse 13. So in this passage, Paul is teaching Titus, he's telling him how to be a pastor, but he gives this reflection for the whole church. There's something for you and I to be doing, to be focused on, while we are waiting, while we're waiting. And So that's what we're going to look at in uh, Titus chapter 2. And the first thing that we uh, ought to be doing as we're waiting is, uh, is beholding God's grace. What do we do while we wait? Number one, we behold God's grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. God's grace has appeared. We have seen it. It has been shown to the world. In verse 14, he says, He gave himself for us. God gave himself for you and for me. Meditate on that for a moment. Do you know that God's grace is shown in the image of his son? His grace towards you was demonstrated through his son, that he gave his son for you. What does that do for you as you think about what God has done for you, that He gave His Son for you? You know, when we behold God's grace, it does so many things for us, but there's at least three things that it does for us in Scripture that I'm going to point to. There's more you can meditate on. The first thing, and probably the most transformational thing, is it softens our hearts to God and toward the people around us. It softens our hearts. When you think about God's grace toward you, doesn't it make you want to be gracious to the people around you? Doesn't it, doesn't it soften your heart toward God? Um, sometimes people go through traumatic or difficult events in their lives. They lose somebody, they lose something, something doesn't go the way they planned. And when they're being really honest, normally not in this setting, but maybe in an office setting, maybe in a counseling, mentoring, maybe uh, at a coffee shop, they admit the words, I'm angry at God. I'm mad at God. And you're like, why? Why are you mad at God? And they said, well, He let this happen, or He didn't stop this from happening, or He did this, or... It's something that has happened that they don't understand, they don't like, it's evil, it's bad maybe, and I don't understand and I'm angry with God. And one of the things as I'm praying for them, because I can't imagine what you're going through, I don't know, I'm not in your shoes, my heart's desire is let's not blame God for the world's brokenness, that's our fault, we are the sinners, God has not sinned. But even stepping aside from that, God has done some things and it has caused trouble for people. But do you know what God has done that will give us the right perspective and the right lens on everything else He ever does? He gave His own Son who never sinned and He called Him to suffer and die in our place that we might become his children that he demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinners when we were god's enemies christ died for us remember when god did that for you because that was in the past if god gave you his son how could you look at him and say you know you're a meanie pants, or why did you let this happen? We don't know why God does everything. We don't know, but we're not able to know. We can't stand in His place. We can't understand what He understands. We don't, we're not responsible for what He's responsible for. We don't have the faculties to be able to understand the universe and determine what is allowed and what's not. We can't even begin to fathom why He does what He does, but we do know why He gave His Son And He gave His Son to save you and me, for God so loved the world. He loved us and graciously sacrificed the most expensive, important, costly thing in the universe and to Him that He could have done. He did that for you and for me. So it softens our hearts. Uh, The grace of God also overcomes our weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians, we we think about this. Uh, Bryant preached on this not long ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Because of God's grace, we are not limited by any weakness we have. Every person in this room has a weakness, has multiple weaknesses. Some of your weaknesses may be physical, mental, emotional. Who knows? But we all have weaknesses. Each one of us has limitations that keep us from doing what we really want to do. If we had our glorified body, we'd be able to do it, but we can't now. We're limited. And this limitation causes us to grieve because we're like, I can't do this, or I can't do that, or if only, if only, we play the if game. But God's grace is sufficient for each one of us and we are not limited by a single weakness we have. Therefore, we can boast in our weaknesses. We can say, that's right. I got all these weaknesses, and God still does amazing, miraculous, good things in my life, through me, right now. God's grace overcomes our weaknesses. Paul did not have to say, well, he did have to because God specifically said it, but God specifically said, My grace is sufficient for you, not my power is sufficient for you, not my spirit is sufficient for you. It's not like those things wouldn't be true, but he emphasized his grace. So when we behold God's grace, that is just God's design that that would strengthen us and overcome our weaknesses. So we behold God's grace, it overcomes our weaknesses. It also leads us to repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You may notice the word grace is not in this verse, but clearly in the Scriptures, how would you define grace? What is grace? Well, God's kindness, restraint, His patience... These are all expressions of His grace. His grace, His favor, His unearned favor is is His patience and restraint and kindness and and many other things. God's grace is shown and His grace ought to lead you to repentance. Um, When I think about how good God is for me, it strengthens me to do better. When I live in shame... It shackles me, and I find myself in a rut. You can't shame a man into righteousness. Although we do it to ourselves, we do it to our brothers, it's not the way God does it. You can't shame someone into uh, repentance. The way to repentance is, God, I've got nothing. I don't have my own strength, and sin definitely ain't it. I need you. You are my only hope. So God's grace leads us to repentance. So make a practice of remembering God's grace for you. Uh, I actually have an Apple note in my uh, daily prayers where the first thing, I don't know if you've ever heard this acronym, pray, P-R-A-Y, praise, repent, ask, yield. Pray or praise repent, ask, yield. It's an acronym. It's been the best one that I've ever used. I've used other acronyms. You know, they have the ACTS or the CATS acronym for prayer. They have all kinds of acronyms. Pray has been my favorite. Praise, uh, ask, repent, or praise, repent, ask, yield. Anyway, the idea is you begin with praise. And the way that I re- begin with praise is really through the gospel. God, thank you for what you've done for me. And that just enters, I just am able to enter into uh, into God's grace that way, just remembering it. So make a practice of remembering God's grace. Everyone does it different. I have to have habits or else I won't do it. So we're called to remember God's grace while we wait, and we're also called to proclaim God's salvation. So the second thing we do is proclaim God's salvation. Verse 11 again, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people bringing salvation. In verse 14, it reminds us, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness, you know what that is. It's not doing what God wants. It's doing what God says don't do. It's, it's going the opposite way of God. And then verse 15, if you finish this section that Paul's writing to Titus in, he says, he writes, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Share these things, Proclaim that the grace of God has appeared bringing all salvation you know bringing salvation for all people. Proclaim those things, share those things. Um, Jesus brought salvation to us. Uh, I, I remember the first time I, I realized this, I thought, oh, how, you know I need to share this with other people um, I was reading in the Bible and I got used to church. I got saved when I was 16. I wasn't raised in church. I know a lot of us, a lot of you were raised in church. I was not raised in church. So when I started going to church, everything was fresh and new. I was just like, what does the Bible say? And what is this all about? And uh, I remember going to Bible college and for the first time reading through the Bible. That was like the biggest bucket list in my heart and mind at the time as a young, as a a teenager. I I think I was 19. And I was reading through the Bible, and I was learning so much, and um, I started thinking about how church life and the Bible, how they match or don't match. And here's one of the big key revelations that just rocked me to my core, and I I just always felt like the church needs to hear this. How come we don't talk about this? Do you know in the Bible, in the whole Bible, especially in the New Testament, because this is the context, in all of the New Testament, There is not one time, never, zilch, zero, not one time the New Testament commands a sinner or lost person to come to the church gathering. Not once. Never. You can read your whole Bible. There is no command for lost people to come to church. Zero. On the other side, there are dozens of commands for the church to go to the lost people. Tons of commands. You go be the church. You go to the sinner. Let's follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? He was a friend of drunkards and sinners. He was a friend of the sinners. He went to them. He showed up at their place with them, talking to them, ministering to them. Sometimes in places where the religious people were like, oh, don't go there, don't go there. Now, people have gone too far with that and put Christians in really unwise situations. That that wasn't what Jesus did. But what is clear is we are called to go to the church. But what is one of the biggest commands that churches hear from their church leaders in church in America today? Invite people to... Not once in the New Testament is that ever given. Now... (laughs) I'm not saying don't invite people. Um, That's fine. You know, bring them here. But this church was not meant for lost people. This gathering is the huddle. This is for the players, the teams. This is the huddle, not the game. We are called to gather together to worship God, to encourage one another, to spur one another on, to love and good deeds, to bear one another's burdens, to hear the reading of Scripture and all that. The church was, this church service was never meant to be what you are supposed to do every day of your life. But there are some churches where this is the big thing. We're going to make this gathering so much so that you don't have to be a Christian, just invite people here and we'll do whatever it takes to invite people here and we'll do all the work. That was never God's plan. Not once in the New Testament are we called to invite people to this. Actually, it's only mentioned once in the whole New Testament that that situation ever rises, and it's Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he's speaking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about tongues and orderliness and all that, and he goes, just in case a lost person does come to your weekly gathering, that's not always going to happen, but just in case it does happen, Make sure that you're speaking in the language that they can understand so that they can hear the gospel and be saved. That is the only instance ever in all the scripture where lost people are called to come to this. And they're not even invited. It's just if they happen to get there. So I'm getting off my soapbox for a minute. I just, the scripture is so good at teaching us if we will submit ourselves to it. God is not obscure and confusing. He will tell us what to do, how to do it, where to do it. He does give us instruction. Now, I've got brothers and sisters that don't share that philosophy, and I, Lord, bless them and use them to be your light and salt. But as far as I'm concerned, I want to do it your way. I want to figure out what did you call us to do? He called us to go to them. And where do we get that example? Jesus. Jesus went to them. Jesus did not only minister to the disciples, he sacrificed, he gave, he stayed up long nights, he crossed the Galilean Sea I don't know how many times. He went from town to town. There was, a, I, I think if I'm, this is going off memory, so, you know, fact check this. There, there was at least 300 synagogues in, in Jesus' area that he went around in that time. He went from town to town, village to village, synagogue to synagogue, preaching hundreds of times to people. It may not be three. I can't remember. I'm going to look at that later and I'll tell you. But uh, he went, I know it's over a hundred. It's so many so many villages he went through in his, in his town and he went to them. And he didn't just go to the synagogue. He also went to the streets and to the lame and the the, he crowds of people were coming around him by the sea, all over the place because he went to them. So here's, here's the point. You are called to proclaim God's salvation, which means you have to go to your neighbors and, your, and the people in your community and share the good news to them. You are called to that. We are not called to sit by the front door 45 minutes before he's really going to get there and just stare out the window. There's things to be done. There's things that need to be done to prepare for the arrival, the coming of Jesus, and we're called to proclaim his salvation. So important. It's for all people. He came bringing salvation for all people. And we proclaim it with all authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've taught you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Jesus gave us this commission to go to the people. And this isn't just for missionaries, by the way. This is for every believer. We're all called to be his ambassadors. While we're waiting for Jesus to return, we're called to share the good news, to proclaim this salvation. That's so clear in verse 15. It's so clear in in all of Paul's letters all throughout the New Testament. So we proclaim his salvation until he returns. And number three, we pursue godly living. We have to pursue it. We have to drive toward it. We have to be eager for it. In verse 12, I'll start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness. So think about it another way. Let me say it a different way. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, for God's grace has appeared, talking about Jesus coming. Christmas instructs us to do some things. The birth of Jesus calls us to do some things. What are they? Well, number one, deny godlessness. Uh, Think of godlessness as activities and arguing. Where do I get that? Well, if you study the word godlessness in this passage, breaking down all the lingo, it's just rebelliousness. Godlessness is rebelliousness. Now, you might be tempted to think, yeah, you know, we got to deny rebelliousness, and I know some rebellious people, right? Well, what is rebellion? Well, let me give you a little father of teenager wisdom I've learned. Okay. Or kids, just kids in general. Rebelliousness, godlessness, do you know it includes arguing? You know rebellion includes arguing? It's like when authority tells you something, hey, do this. And the response isn't, Father, yes, I will. I love you and you love me. I'm going to do this because you know things I don't know. And you're telling me you you're responsible for things I'm not responsible for, and I can't I'm going to do what you said with joy. I'm gonna I'm gonna enlist my brothers and sisters to help me do this, right? That happens all the time. But when it doesn't happen, <laughs> it's it's what the Bible calls godlessness, it's rebellion. But kids aren't the only ones. Ooh, we adults do this. We adults do this. God says, make disciples, and we make excuses. We make excuses. Well, you know, it's not my personality. I'm introverted. Or, well, I don't really know any lost people. Imagine if Jesus had that attitude in heaven. I don't live around any lost people right now. (laughs) Yeah, you, you have to go to them. Yeah, you're, you're definitely going to have to leave where you are. You're going to have to leave the comforts of your own home. Yeah, you're going to have to really suffer to be able to reach them. Oh, you know, God says, um, love your enemy. Forgive everybody. Everybody. Well, you know, I don't know. This is not my tradition, not my custom, not how I was raised, not how I'm born, not my personality, not my blah 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 blah. Just a thousand excuses. That's godlessness. Everyone does that. Everyone. And the people that don't do that, it's in the form of pride. If you think you are never ungodly, that's just pride. That's part of being ungodly, is thinking that you're the Messiah. All of us struggle. All of us deal with this. So we have to deny godlessness. God wouldn't command you to deny godlessness unless you were tempted and put in scenarios where you were to accept godlessness. We all need the instruction of denying godlessness. So the birth of Jesus instructs us to deny godlessness... It also instructs us to deny worldly lusts. So if godlessness is like rebellious activities or arguing, worldly lust is appetite. Deny worldly lust. My favorite is how the, uh, the Apostle John describes lusts in his letters. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you can, you can find this in... 1 John, he talks about temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It feels good, it looks good, or it means you're good, the pride. You are going to be tempted in three main ways. It either feels good, this could be food, drugs, other things, we don't want to talk about all of them, but anything that feels good. That's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes is... It looks good. I want to look at this. Well, that's lust. You shouldn't be looking at that. That doesn't belong to you. That's not something you should see. I know it looks good, but you've got to stop coveting, lusting, sinfully wanting what doesn't belong to you. Or the, the pride of life. This means I'm good. This means I'm better than so and so. I'm such a good person. I don't struggle with whatever. I struggle. I struggle with sin every day. I've shared a lot of my struggles with you. My prayer is that you would be honest with your Christian friends and share them with each other, not to pretend like you have it all together. One of my sins that I really hate is uh, my impatience after 8 p.m., 8 p.m. comes around, and I want to be a godly husband, a godly father. I want to be so much like Christ. 8 p.m. comes around, and I just want my kids to go to bed. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want them to ask me new questions. I don't want them to sit on the couch. I don't want them to just be happy. I just want them to go to bed immediately. And it's because I... I am ungodly when I walk in the flesh. And I don't know what it is after 8 p.m., but buddy, the flesh just comes out. And I've been impatient with my kids. And uh, even though I know that at night is some of the best times to talk with your kids and to process things, I don't, I don't want to do anything. There, there have been so many times I don't even want to pray with my kids before they go to bed. That's how ungodly I am. I don't even want to pray with them. I don't want to ask them. I don't want to answer their questions. I just want to relax. I want them to be totally taken care of so I don't have to think about taking care of them. I'm done. I've been up for 14 hours. I'm done. And uh, that's not how God is with me. 8 p.m. never rolls around with God. As a matter of fact, after 8 p.m., God is especially gracious with me. And uh, I struggle with food. I struggle with prayer. I know how to pray. I want to pray. And I just get busy and I, I value work over prayer. Um, I want to evangelize. There, there's been a desire in my heart to go to a particular place in Newton for a year. I have not knocked on one of those doors. Not once. And and I, deep down, I love the gospel and I want to share the gospel. I still haven't committed to doing that. And I know that the Spirit has invited me to that a year ago. To this day, I still haven't gone over there. And the birth of Jesus instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lust. You have to deny it. You have to say, you know what? No. I want to walk in the Spirit and go with God. So, we have to deny worldly lusts. And what's wonderful with God is He always gives a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. God will provide a way. You can deny lust. You can deny worldly lust. Temptation. That's what it is. You can deny temptation. But notice it says He'll provide the way. It doesn't say He'll walk the path for you. right? When it comes to temptations, no one is given a pass, but every Christian is given a way of escape. We all are going to be tempted and God will give each of us a way of escape if we rely on Him. God will provide a way. So here's a meditation for you. What is one worldly lust that the Holy Spirit wants you to deny? And be honest right now in your own heart and mind. I guarantee as soon as you ask it in your heart, the thought's going to come to your mind. You know what it is. What is one worldly lust God is calling you to deny? One, one form of godlessness we're called to deny it and we're also called to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in this present age. This present age. Man, this present age is not fun. It's not easy. There's tribulation, there's heartache, there's war, there's unrest, there's a lack of peace, there's all kinds of ailments. You know, you've been persecuted, you've gone through tribulation, you've had a difficulty. You you know this present age is is not great. It's, it's not inviting us to godliness. It sure isn't helping us deny worldly lust. The whole world is against the true kingdom, the kingdom that we're waiting for, actively waiting, by the way. And God's called us to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. Sensible means soberly, showing self-control. That idea of self-control is in the letter of Titus so many times. You, I've already shared it with you many times. Righteous, means fairly and godly. Godly sounds like a churchy word. If you meditate on godly, what is godly? A godly way, a godly manner. That just means, if I were to break it down, no special lingo. Godly way means live like Jesus would live. Live the right way. Live as if you're following Christ. Because God came to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. God washed us with his blood so that we would be eager to do good works. Now, what does eager to do good works mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. Eager to do good works doesn't mean, I'll just do whatever I want. You know, I should fill in the blank, but I'll just do whatever I want. I'm just passively waiting. I'm sitting at the door. I'm sitting at the stained glass window of Christianity, waiting for Jesus to return. I'm just sitting here on my laurels doing nothing. That is the opposite of eagerly. Eager to do good works. But you know what eager to do good works means? That word for eager? This is, I want to I demonstrate it, not give you definitions. Eager means... I was made for this. I was created for this. Uh, this happened for me when it came to worship through song. Uh, I I can't sing. I don't sing like you know people with microphones. I don't sing like that. I sing like people like you know. If you ever heard me singing, I remember one time I I just. I felt convicted by the scriptures. The scripture says to praise the Lord. It didn't say, hey, if you really feel like it in your good days, praise the Lord. It's like praise the Lord, hallelujah, all the time, praise the Lord. And I remember one time I was like, you know what, just because I can't sing doesn't mean I'm not gonna praise the Lord. And I remember singing. I remember lifting my hands, singing. And this thought through scripture came to my mind. God, you made me for this. You made me to sing for you. You created me to worship you, my creator. It doesn't matter if I can't sing. And I remember singing so loud, right? Like, if you would have heard me, you probably would have dialed 911. But it was, it was like, I remember singing, and just I was, so, I was so happy in God. I was like, you deserve this. You made me for this. I don't have to worry about how I sound. I didn't make me. You made me, and you say you created me to worship you. I'm going to sing with my whole body, everything. I'm singing to you. I remember singing out to him, and you know, the cops never got called, but it was so great. And I realized God made me for other things too. God made me to share the gospel with people. Man, we're so afraid to share the gospel. We're awkward. We're insecure. I don't know how to do it. What if this happens? What if that happens? How do you start the conversation? How do you even blah, blah, blah? There's so many. There's a thousand reasons for us not to share the gospel. There's only one good one we need, and it already happened. But I remember sharing, and I just didn't care. I was like, you know what? I was made to share the gospel. I was made to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I was made to, after 8 p.m., to be patient with my kids. And it just transformed me. I was eager to do the good works God called me to do because I realized He redeemed me. He reconciled me to Himself. He transformed me. He made me a new creature. He He has done something supernatural in me and made me for this. I want to do it. No one has to make me do it. I was already made to do it. That's eager to do good works. So I'll leave you with this. And be honest. This was convicting for me, right? I'm a sinner too. Are you eager to do all the good works that this book tells us to do? Are you eager to do it? Do you know you were made for this? You're made for it. You don't have to worry about your weaknesses. You don't have to worry about your personality. You don't have to worry about your shortcomings. You were made for this. Eager to do good works. Are you eager because Christmas draws us to that? Eager to do good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit that we were baptized, that we were immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that you baptized us in Christ. You, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. We were brought into that relationship with you. We are in Christ. We can walk with you. Your power can be demonstrated through us. You made us for good works. Thank you that we don't have to rely on ourselves, our limitations. You are the one that does the great work. So we praise your name this Christmas season, and we wait for you to return. We pray, keep us from waiting passively, lazily, without being ready and prepared. Would you prepare our hearts? Would you start a revival here in Kansas? at the center and heart of this nation. I know this is not a Christian nation, but we are a Christian people and we pray that you would start with us, that you would lead us through repentance and you would draw us to the good works that you've called us to do. We're so glad to celebrate your birth your life, your death, the burial, your resurrection. The grace of God has appeared, and we know it's coming again. And so we pray, help us be a people ready for you, truly ready. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.